0: So a lot of athletes like to talk about how much training they're doing and what the typical week is. But, but when you're looking at where big fitness improvements are generated, it's what work did you do over at least a year, a period of a year. So many athletes can tell you how many hours they train per week, even though that might be a glorified training week and not necessarily their average or their normal training week. But very few can tell you how many training hours they get in a given year. And, and I think that if you if you want to really get the most out of yourself as an endurance athlete, you need to take the long-term approach and really the fitness improvements, know, realize that they come from the training that you did over a year or two years or five years or 10 years and not over the training that you did over three months leading up to an Ironman or just a couple of hard sessions during the week before you did your Ironman VR race.
1: That was coach Michael Erickson, host of That Triathlon Show, and this is his story on the Pacing Racing Podcast. Alright, what's happening everyone? Welcome back and welcome to the First Time Listeners. My name is Steven Langenhausen. I'm the host of Pacing Racing, the podcast helping you reach optimal health and endurance through learning from the world's brightest health experts and the world's most talented endurance athletes. And joining us today is Michael Erickson to talk about some of the key components we should be focusing on in our triathlon journey through this pandemic. And I'll be first to admit it, my Training Peaks fitness chart was looking insanely similar to that of the stock market. We had the unstoppable bull run at the all-time highs in the market, and at the same time, I was at peak fitness in my crucial build-up to Challenge Roth 2020. But right when that pandemic struck, both the stock market and my fitness levels took a huge nosedive. And I think from a psychological level, it's hard for people to look ahead and put all your eggs in one basket through uncertainty. And for me, I felt it was more important to enjoy family time through this uncertainty rather than spend those hours in the pain cave. However, we do know that the race season will come back one day. So whether you're still hard into training, and if you are, of course, good for you, or if you're still in off season mode, then wanted to help find a way for everyone to navigate confidently with an actionable plan to get you ready for your 2021 race season. And that's why I'm pumped to be chatting with Michael Erickson on several topics, including how we can create a half or full Ironman distance training plan that's not based around a race season and how we can use this downtime to our advantage to build foundational fitness and optimize our health so that we can be more fit than ever going into our next race buildup. We chat on things like training builds, polarized training, tapers, race specificity, zone two training, 80-20 versus polarized, and so much more. And of course, we'll also touch base on how to avoid and recognize overtraining and how to be properly fueling during your daily training sessions. So there's lots to talk about. And without further ado, guys, let's get into it. All right, Michael, thanks for coming on the show, man. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Thanks, Steven. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, you know, happy to be chatting with a fellow triathlon podcaster here. I mean, I know there's been a crazy, crazy influx of uh, some newer tri-podcasts since this pandemic started. So, I mean, it's always great to have some podcasts in there, but it's also great to be chatting with some of these OGs, if you will, here.
0: (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that because I definitely don't feel like an OG, even though I've been going for more than three years now, (laughs) but uh, there were quite a few... OGs, the, the podcast that I look to as OGs from, from when I started, I, I still would categorize myself in the newer category. But maybe you're right. Maybe that's just my own bias and uh, not a reflection of reality.
1: <laughs> awesome. I know. That's good. And you know what? For me, uh, personally, it's been it's been a while here since I've chatted about triathlon training. So I'm glad we're having this chat today. And I think it's especially important uh, because normally when people are used to structuring training plans around race season, now we had to sort of revisit this concept with the pandemic. So uh, I mean, before we get into all these topics around travel and training during a pandemic, can you sort of tell us a little bit about yourself and a bit about your background for those few who don't know you already?
0: Yeah, uh, sure. So I'm from Finland originally. I live in Portugal now, though have been uh, living here for two and a half years. Uh, I'm an engineer by background, uh, but I started coaching alongside my engineering job, and then eventually in 2017, I quit my engineering job in Helsinki and. Uh, started coaching full-time by then I had already been doing the podcast for around half a year or so and uh, that was also when I moved to Portugal by the time that I, I started doing coaching full-time so uh, that's in a nutshell like from an athletic background I played football or soccer my entire youth until university and then university I started running a bit just recreationally uh, but slowly slowly I uh, got it got better over the years and then Uh, through an injury, I actually ended up starting to swim and bike more. And that's how I eventually ended up in in triathlon.
1: So what was it like having to make that plunge and and quit the full-time job to pursue coaching? Because I'm sure that would be nerve-wracking for a lot of people, but I mean, it seems to be working out very well for you, right?
0: Oh, it was amazing. I had had it all planned out. Well, it was difficult, of course. It was very challenging, but I, I decided on doing that actually like a full half year or so before that this is what I want to do. And I just needed to sort of set things up and prepare and uh, like have some objectives that i wanted to to achieve but all both with of course the preparations of of going into coaching but also actually finishing some projects at work that i really wanted to do and uh, do a good job at so uh, so yeah i I had it all sort of planned out quite some time in advance and uh, and when i finally got to do it it was like yeah, you, you do something that you've been working towards for a long time, and it felt really good. A bit nervous, sure, but more exciting than uh, than nerve-wracking, I would say.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. And you know what, man, it's, it's obviously excellent to be chatting with you here. I think you can bring a lot to the table with all of your experience, and this would be huge to helping some athletes out there get over some of these newfound hurdles in their training routines and... Uh, one of the things I want to, of course, highlight through this is both the 70.3 and Ironman distances here. Uh, I just know there's lots of listeners doing either distance, so it'd be nice if we sort of blankie cover both in a sense. Uh, but let's get back to the basics and uh, work up from there. I mean, I guess in your opinion, how would a training block look like for let's say a full Ironman for an age grouper, right? I guess like say pre pandemic, what's the classic block in your opinion in a typical race season, you know, you have a, a one or two B races, maybe a 70.3 olympic Olympics, something like that. Are you looking at it from a periodization perspective or what are your thoughts? Um, yeah.
0: Periodization is interesting. I think that uh, to a large extent, that's all like how you, like, it's all semantics uh, at the end of the day, really. I mean, Periodization plays a part in terms of there is definitely like certain types of training I want to do in a certain sequence. Not that it's the same for everybody, but for an individual athlete, I will have an idea that during this type of time of year or this time of the season, we will be doing this type of training. But periodization, the way it originally uh, what came up as a term, really referred to you have a set, almost like a formula or a sequence of the type of training you will be doing, and that will be the same for every athlete. And that's where I think that actually there is really not a lot of uh, research, if any, that actually uh, speaks to that being uh, a good, solid approach. And if it is, it's probably only so for professional athletes and not for age groupers. Uh, John Keely is somebody who has done a lot of good work on that and sort of like shooting down the myth of periodization in that very traditional sense but as i said yes there is definitely a variety in how what the training is looking like when we're talking about december january versus june if you're doing a july ironman it's going to look quite different so so in that sense and that maybe is the way that most people think about periodization there is periodization going on and one thing that uh, that i think is uh, quite important for for me as a coach is that uh, race specificities is one aspect that we do more and more of closer to the race so in the last uh, let's say four to eight weeks before the race depending on how many a races the athlete is doing in that year how experienced the athlete is and and uh, and how many races of that distance they've been doing so for somebody who is more less experienced and doing their first ironman will probably spend a good eight weeks working quite a lot on on race specificity. Whereas for a very experienced athlete, perhaps a very, very high level athlete, they have done a lot of races in the past of that distance, they know their body very well. I don't think that that athlete necessarily needs to spend as much time on race specificity. With that athlete, I would be more concerned about really building their engine to be the best it possibly can, because I know that once they get onto the race course, if they have the best possible engine they can execute and and get the most out of themselves on on that race day uh, another aspect that is quite important in the general uh prioritization scheme or how the training is laid out in from a macro perspective is that uh, an ironman or a half ironman or or even a sprint distance they're all super aerobic events like you just need a really strong aerobic endurance foundation. So that's going to be the number one requirement to develop a good aerobic foundation. So that's something that we do from day one of starting training after the off season to the very last day of uh, essentially of, of the taper before before the race is just working on that aerobic endurance. And maybe that's something we'll talk about a, di- a bit later in, in this interview as well. But basically what that means is that you're going to be doing through the season, a lot of work in that zone two, uh, in, in the five zone system, if your listeners are familiar with with training zones. Basically, a comfortable pace that you can hold for a long time and uh, your heart rate doesn't uh, increase, it's stable and it's at a reasonable level. You can talk to a friend that you're riding with or, or riding with that sort of training and, and hopefully accumulate really a, a large amount of that training throughout the season. Then if we talk about some of the more fancy training, the high intensity training and things like sweet spot training and so on, that's where really I don't really have a set structure that I think works for everybody. It's more about what does an individual athlete need And what is the weaknesses and the strengths of an athlete? How can we improve on those weaknesses and maintain those strengths? And that will determine where in the season we will be doing different types of, let's call it higher intensity training, how much of it we will do and and so on. So for example, an older athlete, I will probably have do a little bit more of that high intensity uh, zone five training on a pretty frequent basis just to make sure that they counteract that natural decline in VO2 max that occurs with aging athletes. Whereas a younger athlete, perhaps somebody who has a lot of time to train and a lot of flexibility, they don't really need as much high intensity because they can, they have an, they might have a naturally high VO2 max and they can maintain it through the sheer volume of training that they're doing, but doing too much high intensity might actually just put them in a hole and make them too fatigued. So, so that higher intensity training is where things differ and I don't have like a set answer that this is the way to build up the plan for an Ironman or half Ironman. It really depends on the individual.
1: Right. No, and I'm glad you touched base there on the, the heart rate zone two training. I guess we can talk about that a little bit right now. So uh, let's just say we just wrapped up. Well, I guess many people still have. They just wrapped up their season and they haven't raced since. And when we look at zone two and its benefits, uh, the low heart rate training, is this an important concept that people should be picking up on like what's your whole concept of fitting in zone two into your season i guess
0: yeah it's it's pretty easy you should be doing it through your entire endurance sports career every single week that you're training essentially you you will have a, a fair amount of that training should be zone two training i, I think uh, so uh, so it's not something that you do for a limited period and then you're good and done with it, uh, it it's something that is a consistent part of your training week in week out even when the higher intensity training might be become uh, a more important part of your training uh, which depending on what your strengths and weaknesses are what you're training for etc that might happen at a different time of the season but even when that is a bigger focus that doesn't mean that you're necessarily like losing a lot of your zone two training for it. You're just finding a way to fit that in alongside the zone two training. Because I also don't think that there's really any time of the year, except perhaps the first couple of weeks after coming back from from an off season, that you're doing just zone two training. You're always doing some sort of other training, and perhaps in the early, very early parts of the season, that other higher intensity training is more focused on, like really. Sprinting like in the pool, doing ten to twenty-five meter sprints, and same thing on the run, doing strides and hill sprints. Uh, On the bike, just doing short anaerobic efforts of ten seconds or so. But you're still doing something else. You're you're not always doing zone two. You're not filling your entire week or month with zone two training. But it's the largest building block of them all. It's the because it's the most important one. As as I said. All of the triathlon events, whether we're talking about a sprint or an Ironman, are highly, highly aerobic, and uh, that's what we're trying to accomplish with that zone two training. Of course, the higher intensity training is also aerobic. That's that's not uh, what I'm saying that it's not, but uh, but it's just that you can't do as much of that as of that zone two training. And to it's fairly well established that the amount of training that you can do is is quite well correlated to to how. Uh, how well you'll you'll do in endurance events you won't see any iron man winner who is doing that on 10 15 hours of training per week
1: Right. Yeah. No, it's true. And so, that's, that's good to hear, right? And and so, you bring that back and you're sort of speaking on polarized training and, and how do you see that being integral for foundational fitness? I know you're mentioning to uh, always be incorporating heart rate zone 2 training uh, on those easier days and then allowing room for those harder days to be hard, right? And so, that creates a nice balance. And is that your approach for a lot of athletes? Is sort of a more polarized approach or
0: um not necessarily because with polarized the way it's uh, it's like originally at least described is that the hard training as you say should be really hard like you're above your anaerobic threshold so we're talking basically we're talking zone 5 training you're doing a lot of zone 2 training and a lot of zone 5 training in a 5 zone system not, not a lot of zone 5 training but the the hard training that you're doing is in zone 5 it's above your anaerobic threshold, so maybe high zone four as well. Uh, but but still, you're you're doing your your harder training as very hard training rather than moderately hard training, and uh, that's where like I don't really think that polarized training necessarily is what I follow. I'm not saying that it's wrong or that it doesn't work. It it works. It's great. But but for me, I don't like to pigeonhole myself. I guess in into any sort of training label or training category so i do think that that foundation that the polarized training does prescribe of like you need a lot of training time uh, below your aerobic threshold so in zone two and in zone one i really fundamentally agree with that but how much it is that's something that also depends a little bit on the individual and at the time of year the race they're training for so we have the whole 80 20 term as well which is uh, somewhat confusingly often, like used synonymously with polarized training, which it's not really because the they differ in how the polarized training really prescribes that high intensity training as being being very high intensity above the anaerobic threshold, whereas 80 20 doesn't really uh, make any call on how you spend that 20%. But uh, either way, I do agree with that, like the large amount of zone two training that you need to do, but then how you spend your higher intensity training the zone three zone four and zone five i think that for a lot of athletes for a lot of triathletes especially when we're talking about ironman and 7.3 i actually do prescribe quite a bit of zone three and zone four training that wouldn't really count as polarized it would be more of a right. pure middle approach
1: awesome no that's huge and so i guess let's paint a picture of what we just described here in a way and so saying that if 2021 season is a go that how should athletes be approaching this in trainings and i uh, so i guess we can still build off so challenge roth many of the listeners here are heading to challenge roth next summer in july so we're just both 13 months out from that so i mean it's still a long ways away and i could assume building up too soon can lead to an increased risk of overtraining or burnout fatigue but at the same time you don't necessarily want to lose any fitness you've built so far so what would you sort of suggest as general guidelines for average athletes out there
0: yeah i think an important uh concept to uh, to take on for athletes really is to figure out what their quote-unquote basic week might look like and with a basic week i mean a typical training week that they can manage to do week in week out without accumulating excessive fatigue and uh, running into risk of burnout or anything so for many athletes they might overestimate what their basic week is and in particular when it comes to the amount of intensity that they can that they can fit in because when when it comes down to it when if you ask them to repeat that same week for five weeks or something then actually by the fifth week they're pretty cooked and they need to take a recovery week and i know we have this whole thing uh, about a lot of athletes following A three week on one week off or two week on one week off where the week off is sort of like a big recovery week where you recover from all the work you did in the three previous weeks and i mean there there is a time and place for that i don't think that it's like like wrong per se but for the large part of the year when you're not in like really building your peak fitness for a race I don't think that you should need to have a week off. You should be able to basically repeat the same week, week in, week out. And that might mean that you cut down a bit on the intensity or maybe even the volume, if you're somebody who trains at a high volume, so that you can manage to do that. And then over the long term, when you look at the training you've done over the last six months, you'll actually find that you did more training and you manage maybe even more intensity than you would otherwise have done because you managed to do it consistently week in week out basically what i have talked about quite a lot in this time of the pandemic is that you want to feel that you're not training at your full capacity you would have capacity to train a little bit more than you are actually doing so but you still want to be improving you want to work on that aerobic endurance so so you want to feel like you're training at a high capacity but not at full capacity and 90 percent, i think is like as a just a guideline and uh, as a just as a cue for what it should feel like, that that's I think a good cue. If you feel like you're training at ninety percent of what you could actually handle week in week out, then that would be a good starting point.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect way of saying that. And you know, touching on those recovery weeks too. And let me know if you think everything on this. But uh, what I've sort of gathered from a lot of uh, coaches out there that uh, many seem to think for age groupers anyway, per se, that the recovery weeks, uh, they try to minim- minimize those unless it's very important for a huge training block, but they'll try to get away with the recovery weeks and you know, use the odd recovery day if they need to. But for the most sense that a lot of age groupers, they have things come up in their life unexpectedly. So uh, things happen and they can't get their training that day. And they, they seem to think that uh, athletes in general, age groupers, busy age group athletes will find recovery days unexpectedly, and if they can't train that day, that just sort of becomes the the recovery day. So they don't stress too much about they're taking this whole week off and just doing really easy training where otherwise they could have had some good quality training in, but uh, it was labeled a recovery week. But then the week after they get back into it, they're really busy with work or something, right? So uh, do you sort of see the same thing or what's your thoughts?
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And yeah, it's with recovery days, as you mentioned there. uh, There are a few athletes that I will prescribe recovery days for. It might not, not be weekly, but maybe a couple of them per month, but there are also athletes that I will never prescribe a recovery day because I just know that they will come up anyway. So, But then again, you have to also take into account that actually a day when you're you're at work the entire day, because you have a very demanding job, that's not necessarily a recovery day per se. So, So I still think that using recovery days is something that you need to keep an eye on. And maybe despite the fact that they didn't train for a couple of days, that might not mean that they are recovered per se, but but I do agree with that entire concept that basically more like some people call it recovery on demand. And uh, when the athlete actually tells you, hey, I'm pretty tired, what do you think? Then you have a discussion. And in many cases, maybe the best thing to do is actually take a deliberate day off training. And that might be a Saturday when they're not working. And that way you make sure that they get that recovery on demand as they need it, but not planning it in because it, it might be that, as you say, that falls in a week when they could have been doing a lot of good training but then another week they can't do a lot of training for whatever reasons so yeah i, I agree with that for sure
1: awesome no it's good and so one of the things i think about from a coach coaching perspective as well when you have a lot of athletes coming uh, say if they're a first time athlete being coached for the first time i should say they, they're probably coming in with a schedule that they thought was half decent where you know they're probably just <laughs> just doing it nonstop, training, doing a really hard efforts training, and uh, you know, avoiding those easy days. And they're coming in with adrenal fatigue, or they're coming in with really inflamed bodies, or just not starting off on the right foot. Right? They're uh, they've already beat their bodies down, and they're coming to you and saying, "How can I be better?" But I, I feel so tired and and overtrained as is. Right? So how do you fix an athlete like that? Do you just completely reset them and you know get them accustomed to zone two heart rate training? And I guess that same type of athlete would they be struggling to keep their heart rate low in that sort of Zone 2 heart rate training if they've always just done
0: that high-intensity training? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's... I think, first of all, if if an athlete is coming in and they have been doing a lot of high-intensity training and it's clear for some reason, maybe from discussions that you've had with them that they're beat down, then, yes, I would do some kind of reset. And depending on the severity of how beat down they are, that might look different. It might be, like okay you need to take two weeks completely off before we get started and uh, well I mean in the extreme case if they actually have overtraining syndrome if there is such a thing as overtraining syndrome uh, but uh, regardless if that's something that might be classified as overtraining syndrome then like you might need six months or a year off of that but I have never had to deal with that uh, fortunately but but basically what I'm saying is that maybe for one athlete you need to tell them that okay take two full weeks off have your off season now and then we start training with another athlete it might just be that the first couple of weeks of training you only do low intensity training no high intensity at all if they're not very severely beat down but they've just slightly overcooked things by by a small margin so but some kind of reset yes that that is something that uh, I might have to do as a coach also regardless even if they're not beat down I do always err on the side of caution when I start coaching a new athlete and the first week because in almost all cases I know I've seen their training they already have their training in training peaks which is what I use I can see what they've done and the first couple of weeks that I prescribe will be something that is significantly lower training load than what they've been doing before just because I want to see how they react how things are going and get to know them and in most cases we have plenty of time because it's very rare that an athlete comes to me when they have four weeks before a race, although that too has, has happened. But, that, but generally I have the luxury of being able to take the first few weeks very easy. And uh, we can gradually ease into that coach athlete relationship. And I think that's a good idea to do regardless of if you have an athlete that is beat down from the start or not as for whether they might be struggling with keeping their heart rate down. Um, I, I, yes you, you see that with some athletes but to be honest like i'm not sure that it's always just to do with the way they have been training in some cases yes it probably is but there are also athletes that have a really good uh, aerobic foundation and their heart rate just seems to be high and this is something that i've sort of tried to figure out why it is and i don't think i have the right answer to this but i have some athletes that that just seem to like they can run a easily a 16 minute 5k or something they're really really fit but their heart rate on their zone two runs which might be very slow they might be five minutes per kilometer which for them would obviously be very slow their heart rate is still high and it's not as if they're training like a lot of intensity these are athletes that have a background with a lot of of just zone two training so i do also tend to prescribe the zone two training actually based on power uh, on the bike and pace on the on the run and use heart rate more as something that we track but not always prescribe training by if that makes sense i think heart rate is really really valuable but it's not always the the metric that i prescribe training by if that makes sense it depends a bit on the athlete
1: yeah no totally just use it as another tool to go with the bigger picture of things yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with that for sure so we talked about a lot of of course the aerobic fitness and anaerobic fitness now I guess before we go on to different topics, let's talk about strength training and how much of that should athletes be doing. And I guess to get more specific, I'm sure just to beat some listeners to the to the punch here, for weight training, you know, those static weight training, so like deadlifts, um, squats, those sorts of things, are those relevant for age group athletes or what type of strength training would you recommend for triathlon?
0: Yeah, I think they are very relevant. I think the most the best type of strength training in terms of performance improvements for triathlon. But this is with a big uh, caveat that you actually need to know how to do the exercises. So, if you've never done them, don't go and just load the bar with with weights and and you will injure yourself most likely. Yeah. <laughs> so, be careful with this and it it's very much worth getting a couple of sessions with a good personal trainer who can actually show you the technique, it will be an investment that pays off for years and years to come. Uh, but, but if you can do the exercises correctly, then the best type of strength training from research, and in my opinion as well, is heavy uh, heavy heavyweight, low rep strength training uh, with uh, complex movements, multi-joint exercises. So the ones you mentioned, the deadlift, the squat, those sorts of exercises lunges are great and uh, and some other ones as well like you have um, um, the uh, the pull-up is a great one but just basic stuff and doing in the range of four to six repetitions at uh, a weight that you could maybe do for if you're doing if you're doing four repetitions maybe it's a weight that you could do for six so you're doing pretty close to your capacity and you do maybe three sets of that if you're doing six reps maybe something you could do for seven or eight reps so again pretty close to your capacity Mm -hmm. there is some interesting um, research as well on actually doing it to failure so might be more things coming up I, i don't think there's a huge amount of research on that yet but some interesting indications that maybe actually you should just put on a lot of weight and something that you think you could hold for four reps and then actually turns out you can do it for five reps but after that you're done and that's it you you do maybe another set after a long recovery but uh, I think generally speaking high weights low reps that's the way to go and you need recoveries between sets to be uh, pretty long at least two minutes Uh, three minutes is preferable I generally would prescribe three different exercises or so per session uh, two in the range of two to four. I would probably combine it with some core exercises in the same gym session as well. So it might be doing the squat and the deadlift and uh, the pull-up and do three sets of each, having two to three minute recoveries between each set and uh, the weights, as I, as I described, pretty close to what you can hold for, however many reps you're supposed to do, four, five, six, so, so that's the, the general gist of things. But then also core training uh, is something, core stability, core strength is very important. I think of this in terms of, uh, uh, of anti-rotation, anti-extension, and anti-lateral uh, flexion. So these are, th- are three broad categories of core training. And to give you an example of each, an anti-extension exercise would be a plank, for example. An anti-rotation would be a pile of press so that's something that you can do for example with your swim bands actually if you attach them to uh, to the doorknob or something and uh, you stand having them come to you laterally so from the side and then you just and you stand with tension in the swim bands and then you press the bands away from you and then you'll notice as you press the bands away from you the force that the bands are pulling with will start to actually challenge your core to rotate towards the uh, the anchor point of the bands, and that is what is uh, called the the anti rotation. Another great example would be the Russian twist, so sort of like a sit up position, but with a medicine ball, for example, and just um, carrying the, the medicine ball or or just moving it from one side to the other over your body. And uh, then finally, the anti lateral flexion would be something like uh, like um, just doing lunge walks with. Uh, with a dumbbell in in one hand but not in the other so that's uh or or just walking even it doesn't have to be a lunch walk but different different exercises where you have uh, an asymmetry in the stability so you're holding weight in one hand either holding it down or holding it up over your head uh so so those are uh, those are some great like that's that's basically the way that i design core work to think about we need all of these uh, these different aspects of core strength and stability to to really be able to express our fitness on the swim and the bike and the run
1: yeah it's funny I'm, I'm glad you touched on core because that's something i always tend to try to neglect just because it's it's the hardest for me to do but it's so true right i think every athlete needs to when you think of swimming cycling and running and how crucial core workouts are it's uh yeah it's something you definitely shouldn't avoid so i'm glad you spoke quite a bit on that and gave gave a lot of good insight on it too so I'm, I'm happy about that and for the athletes listening in who might be newer i mean i think it common sense kind of prevails here on on consistency but just for those who are still hitting out those big heavy workouts and then need two three four days recovery then hit another big heavy workout oh well so ironman vr for example i think that's kind of tailored a lot of people to being weekend warriors uh, so just to get in that, that mindset of consistency, can you explain why that training approach of consistency far supersedes something like, you know, three days rest, then then do a mock race, another few days rest and do another mock race and things like that?
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, a pretty simple way to illustrate this is fitness is built over years and years. It's not built over weeks. It's not even built over months. Well, I mean, yeah, you can improve fitness over months, but but it doesn't stop improving after a few months of training. You don't reach your full potential after until after many, many years of training. So, so when you are looking at a lot of athletes, like to talk about how much training they're doing and what the typical week is. And well, I, I like as a podcaster to ask coaches about well, what, what would you consider a typical week? It's a great, it, it's really good to hear insights, and I do understand the really why people like to talk about the typical week because it's small enough that you can, you can grasp it. But, but when you're looking at where fitness improvements, long-term, big fitness improvements are generated, it's what work did you do over at least a year, a period of a year. So many athletes can tell you how many hours they train per week, even though that might be uh, a glorified training week and not necessarily their average or their normal training week. But very few can tell you how many training hours they get in a given year and and i think that if you if you want to really get the most out of yourself as an endurance athlete you need to take the long term approach and uh, and really the fitness improvements no realize that they come from the training that you did over a year or two years or 5 years or 10 years and not over the training that you did over 3 months leading up to an ironman or just a couple of hard sessions during the week before you did your Ironman VR race during the weekend and then you took some time off. That's not to say that doing like the Ironman VR stuff and Swift races and uh, any of that is wrong. It's, it's not. And definitely, I mean, that can be hugely motivational. It can be a replacement for racing. So there are great reasons to do that. But if we're talking about, for example, right now, what is the best way to prepare for a great challenge, row in 2021, then it wouldn't be to like go all in on those virtual races and then take a lot of time to recover and then do do it all again the next week. But it would actually be more so to get that consistency going. But the same thing for those big workouts and like really epic days. I mean, I think I, I don't think that they're anything evil per se, and it's I think they actually have some value to do them every once in a in a while. To do something quite epic because there are different reasons for that depending on if we're talking about epic as in really long stuff or really hard stuff but uh, there are mental aspects psychological aspects of it that can be hugely valuable for raising performance but if you do that too much and it hampers your consistency that's when that's when it becomes more detrimental than beneficial so so i think you need to like just approach it with balance and realize that for the most part, you should find that sort of basic week, basic structure that allows you to be really, really consistent. And then if you every now and then throw in something epic and take a bit more recovery, then that's totally fine.
1: Yeah, very cool. I, I love that concept. Uh, that That's good. It's very straightforward and to the point and uh, definitely huge. I, I think a lot of people can learn from that. And if they just apply that consistency to training, I think it can go a long way there. And and, you know, so you brought up Challenge Roth, and I, I want to touch base back on that again. And and not to say so if there are listeners out there who aren't doing Challenge Roth in 2021, this next question will cover as well any races you plan on doing next summer as well. So, uh, but speaking specifically on Challenge Roth, just so we, so we can paint a picture, say for 2021, uh, if we start this training block uh, or start really focusing on training, say after the summer, so say beginning of September is when we start really hammering up and start preparing for this Challenge Roth race, what would a typical template look like that athletes should sort of be thinking of when we talk about different styles of of training. So example, say beginning September, are we focusing on, you know, keeping that consistency in our training but also doing mainly emphasizing a lot on strength and then where does it develop over time to get you to that July race in uh, peak conditions?
0: Yeah, I think it's like a lot of this we already talked about and and the concept is the same that again i like the the number one requirement is that deep aerobic fitness and uh the for the most part the number one thing that you need to do to build that is just to do really good solid consistent work in zone two and work on that week after week after week but that's not to say that that's everything you're doing uh, so for example, maybe you want to actually raise your VO2 max, and you decide that for a few weeks you'll, as your quality workout or workouts of the week, you'll focus a bit more on that high intensity interval uh, type of training, and that's that's totally fine. And this and this will be different for different athletes, of course. But but I think that I guess generally speaking, if we have as long as from September until July next year, I think there is definitely more than enough time to incorporate blocks where we work on all different types of training intensities that you can imagine as sort of the complementary training to that uh, bulk of zone 2 training you're doing so you might have a few weeks where you're working on that high intensity and then you might take some time to focus more on sustained power so on the bike for example sweet spot training you might take some time to work on on threshold training you might work on speed Etc. And and I think that when when you have almost a year, you will be able to cycle through this uh, quite a lot of times. And that's not to say either that in any given four week period that you only do zone two and one other type of training. I think that and I do as a coach uh, mix in a few other types of training. But I always have in the back of my mind that in addition to the endurance training, the zone two training we're doing there's one sort of main aspect we're working on in this training block and then we sprinkle in maybe something else and that might be for maintenance or it might be for preparation for the next training block to come so for example after a block of high intensity training then during the next training block you won't do a lot of high intensity training but i will sprinkle in a little bit just because i don't want to lose those gains that that were made and that might be done in the same uh, in in another High quality or hard workout. So let's say the next block is that sustained power or sweet spot or something. Then actually, before we start the sweet spot work, I might throw in something like six times one and a half minutes or one minute at your VO2 max power. And that's not a lot compared to what you were probably doing in the block before, but it is enough to to remind your body of what it felt like and. Hopefully that this is sort of the assumption that I'm working with, and what anecdotally at least seems to work fairly well, uh, that that is enough to sort of maintain a bit of that uh, like high power that you built the VO2 max that you that you built and hopefully increased during that previous training block. So so you take that with you to a smaller extent, even though the main course in that new training block is the sweet spot work in this particular example.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's good and. Uh, when we look at those last several weeks leading up to the race, I know one thing we haven't touched base on yet was the race specificity. So let's let's sort of talk about that a little bit more. I, I know that's probably the, one of the most crucial components of a, a training buildup. So how can you touch, like, can you touch base on sort of the importance of race specificity and how far out should athletes be doing this, say for a 70.3 or for an Ironman? What's sort of your general approach? Do you have one or is it is this very flexible to each individual?
0: It is quite flexible, but uh, but I have some general parameters that I work with, and uh, there would be, for somebody, examples, example, uh, not, not a complete beginner, but somebody who is uh, a less experienced athlete and they're doing their first Ironman, the Ironman is obviously a, a huge challenge just because of its length, and uh, pacing is critical. So for this less experienced athlete, maybe not as in tune with their body as a more experienced athlete, I would... a large emphasis on race specificity Uh, if nothing else even if it's not the best way to build the engine of that athlete in those last uh in that last training period it is more so because i know that if they pace the race well that will that will be just such a critical part of them having a successful race so so race specificity for them will be a lot about learning what what it feels like and what is sustainable or what is actually a very very long day of training it's not so much about like just building pure fitness, although it will, of course, build fitness as well. But there might be other training that might be even better. But at that point, the trade-off for me is worth it to make sure that they're really good with their pacing and psychologically as well. They know, they have the confidence that they've done a lot of work in training, so they know what they're supposed to do on on race day. So for this newer athlete doing their first Ironman, for example, I would uh, probably... Put something like eight weeks of uh, training where in addition to the normal two training of course we have a lot of race specific training uh, so so that would be one example now on the other end of the extreme so to say if i have a very experienced athlete that is maybe racing quite a lot and they're doing a 70.3 for example but they also have a lot of other races they've already raced in the season then they don't need that much race specific training my main job is just to make sure that they have the the best possible engine possible on on race day because they know how to pace the race and they might not even care about pacing as much as they care about competing. And the race is more dynamic for them if they're at the top of the field, uh, rather than just a, a solo time trial. So, so for them, I mean, in some cases, to be honest, they do no race specific training, but uh, ideally, even for like a very experienced athlete like that, I would probably have them do three or four weeks of where we include a fair amount of race-specific training. And in some cases, it might be more. But at that point, what I always need to consider is, is this race-specific training actually going to enhance their, their engine, their, their fitness? Because if it's not, I'm not sure that those extra weeks of race-specificity are worth it if we could do something that is better at actually improving their fitness and their engine. Because they get enough anyway, they they achieve a the minimal effective dose of race specificity with those three or four weeks, perhaps, that they, they might be doing.
1: Yeah, no, that's good. And when we look at this race specificity, I guess what tends to follow or mesh well with it is the taper mode. Can we sort of talk on taper, I guess, before we finally switch topics on towards nutrition? I mean, taper, I think, is really, really integral. But I think some people uh, might not realize the true benefits behind this if they might be newer right i know i know experienced athletes out there definitely see the importance of a good taper but uh can you sort of explain the general guidelines of a taper for say an ironman and how they should go about that coinciding yeah. alongside the race specificity training
0: yeah so the general guidelines and under and to be clear when i talk about having for example four weeks of race specificity i i would say that I probably talk about four weeks of race specificity and then taper so although may, no, maybe i'm talking about three weeks of race specificity then one week of taper slash race specificity so they sort of in conjunction with each other and then one week that is just like tapering like the final taper where we don't do a lot of training at all the general guidelines for a table are fairly simple and fairly well established uh, in research as well uh, so Basically, 10 to 14 days of a significant reduction in training load seems to be what most research says. And uh, training load is reduced by reducing volume, mostly. Uh, You are probably reducing the volume of intensity as well, but you maintain the frequency of both training and the frequency of intensity. So if you're used to doing, let's say, three swims and bikes and runs per week, then you probably keep doing that, but you just reduce the length of them. And if you're used to doing one intense workout in each discipline, then you keep doing that. But maybe the main set is 10 by 100 meters at threshold for the swim instead of 20 by 100. So it, it, it's all just scaled down. And how much scale it down? Uh, I think it tends to be 40 to 60%. Uh, to give you an example, for athletes that I coach that train that are like high level athletes train 20 to 25 hours per week, when I'm tapering them for Saint Patrick or an Ironman, I tend to go down to around 15 hours the penultimate week before the race, and then maybe nine to 10 hours, which would be around 40% for race week, plus the race itself, of course. But nine to 10 hours of training, so so that gives you gives you an ID. And um, yeah, as I said, frequency frequency is maintained and intensity is maintained. How intensity is maintained is perhaps something that isn't like really described a lot in the in the research what i like to do is to not do too hard intensity and definitely err on the side of doing less rather than more but i also want it to be high enough intensity that actually like you get all the muscle fibers working and you actually like really make sure that your your body is firing on all cylinders during the short time that you do that so in race week for example a typical bike taper workout that I might give could be something like four times four minutes at threshold power. I like to generally in taper, I like to prescribe things at threshold power or threshold pace because that seems to be a good sweet spot for me with intense enough, but also it's not as fatiguing as the like VO2, uh, VO2 max or the zone five stuff. But that's just my personal opinion. That's not something that is necessarily like research, or in fact, it is not research necessarily. I, I just find that that works pretty well. And but of course, there there might also be some race specificity there, or there is. So uh, to take that example a bit further, actually, I might give a Tuesday bike ride in during race week might be four times four minutes at threshold with long recoveries, so four minute recoveries, and then go into 15 minutes at ironman race pace which considering that ironman race phase is, isn't very very fast that that isn't going to tax you but it still gives you that feeling for the pace so so that's the main purpose at that point so awesome. uh, yeah i think that that covers most of it
1: yeah and you know what looking back at everything we just spoke on here i think that generally paints a really solid picture on how to train you know through a pandemic but also You know, just in every every day, like pre pandemic or post pandemic, right? Like you know, this covers everything. I guess the only key difference is we don't have these races breaking up our training blocks, right? So we just end up building one bigger overall series of training blocks with that aren't broken up by a race necessarily. But as you mentioned at the beginning, in these sort of times when there's no races in an unseeable or unforeseeable future, here that. We might be lowering the amount of volume we have until we sort of have a plan in place. So uh, I think you've touched on a lot of great topics here, right? From recovery sessions to tapering and everything in between. So so that's huge. And one of the things I want to shift the focus to now is nutrition, and specifically right now uh, during training sessions. And I guess this is a very broad question here, but like, what's your general approach to fueling for training sessions? And I, I know the most obvious answer to that would be, uh, train the way you race and, and which I totally agree. But I want to also kind of take note for a listener listening in here, who's thinking that, and they see the next year of just training, they might be concerned about burning a hole in their wallet (laughs) with, uh, you know, every single day taking nutritional supplements, but what's your general approach? Are there some sessions that they can get away with just having something post-workout or what's your general thoughts on nutritional supplementation through daily training?
0: Yeah, first on that, burning a hole in your wallet, I'm definitely not the authority on this, but I know that on the internet, if you Google homemade sport drink or homemade gels, you can actually find quite a lot of good stuff on how to make things for really, really cheap. And it's something I've been playing around with the thought of actually doing myself, because I'm definitely spending a lot on gels and stuff, but uh, yeah, I haven't done it yet, but I know it, it's out there. So for the listeners interested, definitely Google that. And uh, that might save you quite a bit of money in the in the long term. Um, I think that in terms of how to actually fuel your training, it it really depends on the training that you're doing, and and there's and this is also something that is uh, pretty well established in research and in best practices in what what the top athletes are actually doing. When you have your quote unquote key workouts, workouts that you really want to perform in, they might be your long long workouts or your uh, intense workouts whatever they are and that's something that you know if you've created your own program or if you have a coach then you can ask your coach so what what are the key sessions or it should be pretty obvious by looking at the program but if you're newer then maybe ask your coach Uh, either way like in in those workouts where you really want to perform then it's really quite crucial to have adequate carbohydrate availability because intensity in particular when we're talking about intensity is uh, really it's using a lot of carbohydrate and it doesn't matter how fat adapted you are it's when you're getting to towards your threshold then you're always going to be using mostly mostly carbohydrate uh, so so to perform there to the best of your ability especially if that session is also quite long you need to be consuming carbohydrate. And I do think when we're talking about these intense sessions that in those sessions, you can't really rely on like slower uh, carbohydrates, like uh, in in your long runs, like just to make sure that you don't run too low, go too deep into your like into glycogen depletion. You can definitely eat things like bananas and stuff and uh, rice cakes, things that are maybe slower absorbed, but but when you're going out for a five-hour ride, if you start doing that from the first hour, then you're going to to use it maybe in the second hour or the third hour, but you're still going to get to use it, and you're going to it's going to serve the purpose that it has, which is to just not make you glycogen depleted. But in the more intense workouts where, where you really want to perform and you want that carbohydrate to be absorbed quickly and actually used by the muscles when you're doing the work or within 10-15 minutes of you consuming the energy – then you want to be relying on on fast sugars that you could get from gels, uh, gels, sports drinks, and uh, and similar. And uh, personally, I do think that gels and sports drinks are the best because they are just fast absorbing for those types of workouts versus things like bars, again, slower absorbing because they also contain some fat, maybe a little bit of protein. They're, they need to be digested in the uh, in the gut rather than actually being taken up directly into the bloodstream and so on so so yeah the the general the general philosophy is the key workouts you want to make sure you have good carbohydrate availability going into them and maintain that especially if the session is going to going to be long so that you can perform the work to your best ability because you're not looking there to you know you're not looking to lose weight when you're training when you're training that's that's not the right place to do that and you're not looking to work on your quote unquote fat adaptation in those workouts. your fat adaptation your ability to o- oxidize fat will go up when you're when you improve your your aerobic capacity your vo2 max and if you're constantly under fueling your your workouts and you're not actually improving your vo2 max, then you're actually doing yourself a disservice in terms of fat oxidation for example, which is a very common mistake uh, that uh, that people fall into but then, and then long workouts i, I do think that but to some extent you definitely should be fueling them you definitely don't want to bonk you don't want to go too deep into glycogen depletion because that will make your recovery that much longer and again coming back to what we talked about earlier the important thing really is looking at what's the type of tra- what's the quality of the training and the amount of training that you manage to do over an entire year or several years if you fuel your workouts well then you're going to be able to do more and better training in the grand scheme of things than if you do a poor job of that. So if you don't fuel your long ride and you bunk and then you your workouts the next day or that afternoon suffers as a consequence, then you're losing out. It's like the whatever benefits you might have gained from doing the ride fasted, which is still something that is somewhat it's it's an interesting area of research but there actually hasn't been a whole lot of research on performance benefit from doing a lot of fasted workouts even though it is something that there, there are evidence of improved signaling molecular signaling but it hasn't yet been shown that it's actually translating to performance improvement so it's something that we can make educated guesses about but it's not something that we can speak with great confidence about yet so i think it's a potential area for actually using as athletes, but I think it should be done sparingly. So maybe you do a couple of lower intensity sessions per week, you can do uh, you can do completely fasted, so no eating nothing before, just rolling out of bed and, going and getting it going and not having having anything during them. But don't do that during too long workouts. So maybe take 60 minutes at the start at least as your cat, and maybe later on you can extend that to 90 minutes. And, but then, generally speaking, for most of your workouts that are going to be, let's say, 90 minutes or less, and they're going to be not be intense, then you can really just get away with water. Maybe some electrolytes if you if you need to. Uh, but uh, yeah, mostly you can get away with water if you're if you're training for 90 minutes or less and it's not intense workouts. It's those intense workouts that are that you want to really move the needle. That's the ones that you need to fuel both before adequately and after.
1: Awesome. No, it's so true, right? And I'm I'm glad you touched base on that. And there's something I actually want to ask, just sort of piggyback off that answer there. And it's that ongoing debate there. And uh, I know you had this, I know you actually did a big uh, podcast on this recently, but uh, you know, the debate between low carb and high carb diets, uh, when we talk about fat adaptation and things like that, in terms of performance, uh, do you have any Insight or stance that you could share on this, uh, just because I know this is a big topic in the triathlon realm, and I'm just more curious to see on what your thoughts are and uh, with all your research.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's like very, very straightforward. There's uh, pretty clear evidence that being in a chron- on a chronically low carb diet that's going to impair your performance as an endurance athlete. Period. So uh, <laughs> I don't know how how deep I uh, I should go because it's a very inflamed topic. But uh, yeah, oh yeah. But that's, that's just <laughs> I I think that it's uh, it's actually like why would you why 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 would you exclude something? I, I don't I, I really don't see the point of that. I think that people are getting really hung up on a very specific tree in the forest and they they don't see the entire forest when when they. When they're talking about how like low carb diets are so so good, but actually, like, and if you look at like the very elite athletes as well, yes, there are some pro athletes that are uh, on low carb diets. There are very few. Like, if we look at it in terms of percentage, they're extremely few. Most athletes eat everything. They're they're, very, they're omnivores, and uh, and then the other thing that we can say about the athletes that are on low carb diets, they generally are not near the podium in Kona, for example, or the Olympics or anything like that. They, they are pro athletes, but they could potentially be doing a lot better if they were actually uh, eating, eating carbohydrate as well and not being restrictive about that. That being said, there is uh, definitely a case for like periodizing uh, your carbohydrate potentially. And on a day when you don't train as much, then, yeah, you don't need as much. On a day when you train a lot, you need a lot more. So, uh, so that's it's, it's really not about like being like labeling things black and white and being black and white about things. It's about getting the route, the right amount of everything that you, that you need. So that, and, and the other thing I want to say as well is that, um, when like one of the, the arguments for low carb diets is that like carbohydrates are so uh, like unhealthy and processed, but I mean, it's yes, if you're only going to eat candy and, and ice cream, which is also a lot of fat, by the way, if you are talking about ice cream, <laughs> yeah. then then yes, that, that's not a good diet. But it's not because of the macronutrient. It's just because of the type of food you're eating. So I would also say that a lot of athletes are focusing way too much on uh, macronutrients rather than the actual food they're putting in their mouth. So if you're eating mm-hmm. things like potatoes and uh, legumes that have a lot of carbohydrate and some protein and uh, those sorts of things rely on fruit, of course, uh, vegetables rely on that for carbohydrate. Then, I mean, it's an incredibly healthy diet.
1: Hundred percent. I think I can agree with you fully on that too. And I even see it from the health perspective as well. That uh, that's kind of my my approach to it. And uh, I definitely agree. I just I was curious to hear that. I know you just had a big long uh, podcast on it, so I was excited to get your your insight on it. So that, so that's good to hear. And I think that can uh, clarify. You know, just this whole conversation here I think could really help clarify people and get them on a new foot, get them ready, and get them motivated and excited. And encouraged to do well through this pandemic and eventually get ready for an upcoming season when it'll happen we're not too sure but uh you know i think that's obviously a great place to wrap things off here and uh you know of course i didn't want to go through all this without of course highlighting your podcast a bit here before we log off and i'm sure many already know your show but for those here who don't do you mind filling them in briefly on what it's about and where they can go to find out about it
0: yeah thanks Stephen. i appreciate that so the podcast is called that Show. And you can find it on any podcast app, Spotify, uh, YouTube as well. And uh, you can find it on the website. So one of the great things that I get a lot of feedback on, uh, positive feedback, is that uh, I have really detailed show notes. So each uh, each of the Monday episodes, not the Thursday ones, which are Q&As, but the Monday ones, which are generally interviews, they have long show notes that are like detailed written summaries of, of uh, the episode. And uh, I want to... Uh, give a shout out to to Rasmus who does those uh, show notes uh, for the show because I couldn't do it alone uh, but uh, you can find that on scientificrefront. which is my my website and just click through to podcast and all of those show notes and previous episodes will come up and that's a great way as well to to find episodes you might be interested in listening you can just click through to a certain category of episodes and and find what might be the most interesting for for you so yeah definitely uh happy for for any of your listeners to go and check it out if they haven't already
1: perfect and of course uh scientific triathlon the website there is that's where they go if they want to find out more about some training plans coaching things like that too
0: yeah exactly yeah it's all on there
1: beauty awesome well you know what that's been a great chat super inspiring and informative to chat with you here today and you all man, all the best and of course in these times stay safe and stay healthy and uh hope to chat again soon here
0: yeah, thanks, Steven, And uh, keep up the great work with uh, with your podcast. I'm also de- uh, a loyal listener of that. And and really, you're getting some uh, really good content out there. So so really appreciate that.
1: Awesome. Thanks, man. All the best. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap with Michael Erickson. Thanks so much for listening in. And if you enjoyed this episode, among others, and please should take a minute to open up the Apple Podcast app on your iPhone, search Pacing Racing, click subscribe, and then scroll down to the bottom and just leave us a quick written review. It takes less than a minute to do, but it goes a long way in helping me out. So to all who do that, thanks so much. It's highly appreciated. And other than that, guys, happy training. And if you want to train with me on Swift, then drop me a follow by searching Stephen Langenhausen. Anyway, take care. Chat soon. Cheers.